<clears throat> there's an old uh, joke that I heard once about Unitarian Universalists. There's actually a lot of jokes about Unitarian Universalists, <laughs> most of which you can hear at one point or another in Garrison Keillor, uh, Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> second only to the jokes about Lutherans that he tells, I guess. <clears throat> but you could tell this one, I think, about ethical culturists, too, maybe with a different setting. It's just a short one. It says, you know, if, if Unitarian Universalists were given a choice between going to heaven or a discussion about heaven, they would surely choose the discussion. <laughs> Far more interesting. The version may be for ethical culturists, or maybe it's for progressive, well-read, well-informed people in general is whether we'd rather go to participate in a rabble-rousing action on an issue we care about or a discussion about that issue, maybe a lecture on it, with a Q&A afterward, of course. What I want to examine today is that polarity, or maybe just that tension, of the need to be deeply educated about the issues around us, and that is a need, and the desire to jump in and do what we can. You might be able to guess where I fall on that polarity, if it's a polarity. On the spectrum of kind of needing to know all of the details before I do anything, please send me a white paper if it's not footnoted. I really can't move. And, um, and just do it maybe the Nike version of social justice, I am definitely on the Nike end. Some of you know that a couple of weeks ago, I participated along with West member Ross Wells, who's here today living to tell the tale, in an action of civil disobedience around, um, thanks, uh, around immigration reform right in front of the White House. I was announcing that I was doing that and inviting people to join me, and we had other West members who came to support the action. Um, in in one of our uh, emails, you know, that goes out to the community at large, and a member of West had a, a number of questions for me. That's a surprise, I'm sure you'll you'll think. <laughs> Gosh, West members, questions really? So um, so this particular member. Um, uh, called me up or sent me an email and had a lot of questions about kind of policies and what did we mean by not one more deportation? Surely that can't be what we meant. And what are the policies we're trying to move forward? Is there legislation on the federal level or on the state level that we're working on? And um, honestly, I didn't have answers for some of those questions. And so um, I said, you know, I will get back to you. I had some answers, but um, I said, I want to get back to you on the finer points of the policy pieces. I have a friend who's participating in this action as well, and I'll get in touch with her. She's a colleague. She's very smart about all of this and let you know what her thoughts are and kind of be able to um, expand on those policy uh, points for you. And so I got in touch with that friend through Facebook. She was coming into town for the action. And I said, um, explained the situation, said I really want to be able to give a, a really complete, coherent answer to this person who has really good questions. And she said, um, yeah, sure, we'll have time to talk about it while we're in jail. <laughs> so that's kind of my motto of justice work. Get arrested first, ask questions later, right? In fact, for me, it's not even about the action versus education issue. Every once in a while, people will ask me what um, justice issues are most important to me. You know, what am I passionate about? What am I hoping to work on in the next six months or the next year? And honestly, my answer is usually something like, it doesn't really matter. 
There are a lot of things wrong with the world. I will fix any of them, whichever comes my way first. I wasn't always this way, though, so eager to jump into action. I used to be a researcher with the best of them. You know that sort of do-well-in-school mentality, make sure that you've done all your studying before the test. I came from an academic family. And I think, too, just that general human need to be able to understand my world, my views, my values. Surely we all have that. The first time that that, um, that that framework was tested for me was a couple of years into seminary. I'd gotten that far sticking with my flashcards and my preparations for tests, making sure I knew all the answers before they were asked of me. And then I went and did a hospital chaplaincy uh, not far from here at Washington Hospital Center. It's a required part of um, my training, and so in that chaplaincy, it's kind of an, an eight-week experience. You're thrown into the hospital, and, um, and you start seeing patients as a chaplain almost immediately. In fact, well before you have your first class on how to be a chaplain and see patients. And, um, and that model goes all the way through the eight weeks. So you try something, and then you come back and talk about it, figure out the ways that you did it wrong, and then go back and try to do it a little better next time. There were a lot of things about that eight weeks that were hard um, for me. One of them was the all-nighters that you pulled when you were the chaplain overnight at the hospital. But, but I think the hardest was that praxis model, that way of learning by doing, going out and being thrown into the world and then coming back and learning what it was you were supposed to have done while you were visiting that patient in their room. It was scary for me, and it was also a turning point for me. So I think that that led to some of the change that's gotten me into my uh, get-arrested-first-ask-questions-later kind of attitude. Some of it, too, comes just from my continuing radicalization. As I learn more about the world around me, the world as I wish it were, the world that we imagined with Marty and with Nicole and David, and the world as it is, The more I learn about that, the more I think that if someone tells me there is a way to change any part of that system, I want to be there, because the system in general doesn't seem to be working all that well. Sister Simone Campbell, she's she's with Network, but she's known especially for nuns on the bus. Do you remember that tour? They're still active, I think, nuns on the bus. The sister, Catholic sister kind of nuns. I actually was thinking as I was watching her talk yesterday that I would love to have nuns on the bus accompanied by the nuns on the bus, the N-O-N-E-S on the bus. That's kind of all of us. And then we could have like two buses going together working on the same radical social justice issues from different faith standpoints. Wouldn't that be awesome? Anyway, Sister Simone Campbell is actually from the nuns on the bus, the one that exists, not just in my imagination. And she gave the where lecture at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly this past June, and that's what I listened to as I prepared for this platform. In that lecture, she's talking about kind of what motivates her for social justice work. And um, she's been now 50 years in her order and 50 years working for justice. She's actually part of an order called the Sisters for Social Justice, which is about the best name of a Catholic order I can imagine. So she talked about what motivates her, and she had this idea called walking towards trouble. 
walking towards trouble. She said, when I walk towards trouble, my experience is that I open myself to questions, to uncertainty, to risk. She goes on, the importance of being uncertain is that I live a life that is slightly disturbed. If you walk towards trouble, you have to walk with an open heart and learn deeper truths. So I've been thinking about that idea of walking towards trouble and walking with doubt. She, she has some beautiful, some beautiful talk in there about how she has a life of faith but also a life of doubt and how important it is for her that those two go together, that the questions come right along with her as she walks. Now, at the same time, you don't want to be sort of a knee-jerk radical, right? Or at least I don't. I don't want to just walk towards trouble because trouble's there. You know, you want to have a little bit of information about it. I think otherwise it gets perilously close to if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? I actually said that to my child the other day. I forget what it was. <laughs> it was one of those moments when you think, oh, I got to that stage of parenting. Great. <laughs> we teach our children to think for themselves, We cultivate skepticism in a community like ours. We cultivate fact-checking in ourselves and in the kids that we try to raise. We need to know enough to speak intelligently. I watch the news. Most of it is from Jon Stewart, but he really is a very good, um, you know, he, he presents the information, and then you can go and read the backup article if you need to, although really, I think he does it so well, you rarely do. But it's important, I think, in some ways, it's important to know some of the arguments and counter-arguments. My husband is very skilled at this. He spends a lot of time learning arguments and counter-arguments to policy positions or, or things that are important to him. In fact, he is often the person I turn to at the end of John Stewart to say, so tell me a little bit more about that. And he's read the articles and can share enough with me that I get sort of the Cliff Notes version. But that value of educating ourselves, it's part really of our DNA of who we are. The American Ethical Union, the national body, which is our heritage and of which we are a part, is actually calls itself a religious, educational, cultural, and social justice organization right there in the mission statement. There's a great blog written by West member Ellen Post. Some of you might be familiar with her blog and her beautiful writing. And this particular blog post was called, she titled it, The Reluctant Activist. She's talking about herself. She wrote, I'm basically an academic at heart, always striving to do the best unbiased analysis, being careful to clearly state the necessary caveats and not overstate the case. A couple years ago, Ellen goes on, my daughter showed a photo from Occupy Sanity on the website Measure of Doubt that she and my son share. It made me laugh. The photo showed an activist in a crowd holding up a handwritten sign. The sign said, what do we want? Evidence-based change. When do we want it? After peer review. (laughs) The quote my daughter offered with the photo was, 2468, and if you could please register your studies ahead of time to combat publication bias, that would be great. (laughs) This has my name written all over it. Ellen went on. Ellen talks about how important it is for her to have evidence, to have the full story, to understand both sides. 
and how hard that can be when you're choosing to take a stand, sometimes without all the information. She talks about her choice to be an activist anyway and about the role of research, of education in that choice, the way that it's enhanced her activism choices. Ellen has taken on two particular issues in her own activist life, climate change and money in politics. And she writes, there's another reason I chose those issues. There's a lot of evidence, that's in italics in her blog, a lot of evidence supporting the contention that these are indeed serious problems. There's now a veritable mountain of evidence from climate scientists and other scientists, similarly credible political scientists and economists. She goes on to talk about that evidence. This credible research satisfies my need for evidence-based thinking. It's not just that people are holding up posters and shouting. It's that scholarly peer-reviewed research has overwhelmingly concluded that these are serious problems indeed. I don't have to convince myself that these are huge problems. The evidence does that for me, end quote. I love the way Ellen puts that. I love the way she takes her need for evidence and education, her need to truly understand. And if you know Ellen, you know she has a formidable intellectual mind and uses it as an impulse for her activism, for radical change, for action in the world. We know how important education can be for self-transformation, too. Lindsay spoke beautifully about her experience in the anti-racism training, and I know others, including myself, have had some of those experiences as well. The way that education, learning, connecting, can change our hearts. Coming up in October, this congregation, as well as others, as part of the Greater Washington Immigration Film Festival, the first one of its kind, and it's being spearheaded by two uh, deeply action-oriented folks in our congregation, Patty Absher and Judith Johnson. Now, that's an education format, right? Watching a movie and, and just kind of taking in that information. But I think it can spur action, too, Paolo Ribeiro, who's an ethical culture uh, leader in training, who I've quoted before, actually um, got in touch with him to make sure I had the quote right. I was remembering it from something he said at the American Ethical Union's Assembly this year. He, in turn, was quoting a member of the Bergen Ethical Society at a social action committee meeting, saying, learning without follow-up is just entertainment. Isn't that powerful? Learning without follow-up is just entertainment. And so it gets me thinking about the kind of education that we look for, the kind of education that really spurs us on to action in the world. Sister Simone Campbell said it this way, you have to let it sink down from the head into the heart. From the head into the heart. I wonder if there's something there about head knowledge and heart knowledge and action. So the kind of education we seek. I was crowdsourcing on Facebook yesterday looking for different readings that I might use in this platform, and people were sending me different possibilities. One of them was by Vilma Harrington, who I can't find anywhere except cited for this particular poem. And I want to share it with you. It's kind of a, well, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, I think. It's called Causes Yes, People No. It's written as a prayer 
So there's some language in there, but it's really part of the form of the poem, so don't let that be a barrier for you. Just listen to Vilma Harrington's words. Give me causes, O God, to theorize, argue, talk about. Let me think of problems far away. Let me go to luncheons, dinners for tired celebrities with long speeches, speeches about causes. Let me raise money, money to support big offices with large staffs to do a little good for someone, someone far away. Give me causes, O God, causes to forget the miseries that are too close to hide. But don't, O God, don't let me be involved with people. People are too near. People may enter my home, may cry before my eyes. People can be hungry, ragged, even dirty. They may ask me to give, to give without publicity. People may be rude. They may ask me to identify with them intimately when all I want is not to be involved. I want to be interested, God, yes, interested. Causes help me to be interested. And informed, people get me involved. So give me causes, O oh God, to theorize, argue, talk about. Let me think of problems far away. That, I think, would be the wrong kind of education, it's fair to say. I love the dichotomy set up in that poem, in that piece, between causes and people. Because for me, my get arrested first, ask questions later attitude has a lot to do with people, with relationships. It has to do with coalitions that I trust, people that I trust. My colleague, the one who was going to explain all of the policy to me while we were in jail together, she's the reason I went to the action in the first place. I know her well enough to know that if she wants to go to jail for it, I probably do too. We can sort out the details later. That's how much I trust what she says. And then, too, that particular action was co-sponsored by Casa de Maryland and standing on the side of love. And I trust them. I trust the coalitions they built. I trust the organizing they've done and the people behind them. Some of you know the social thinker Jonathan Haidt. His work, um, often quoted in the New York Times, most recently he has a very large book but this thick, called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. His point, at least in part of that book, is that people think they use reason to get to their positions, you know, that they need a long argument and education to figure out where they stand. But the reality is we have positions first. We have reactions and moral compasses and values, and we use reason to justify them. To me, that speaks to the importance of what's sometimes called narrative ethics or personal ethics. It's as opposed to something like virtue ethics, which is ethics based on following a, a single person of great virtue, or deontological ethics, which sounds really fancy. First of all, so you should try to use it a lot in conversation. But deontological ethics is basically just following rules. It's ethics based on the idea of unchanging rules. Well, narrative ethics, personal ethics... It's ethics that's tied to another individual and to their story. It's figuring out how to be in the world, how to act in the world, because of the stories that we tell each other, because of the people that we know. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, would agree, I think, with the idea of personal ethics. 
and that in the end action is called for. He wrote, it is not a book or laws or words that induce people to act morally. It is people who induce moral action. People themselves aflame with the desire for some good can kindle in others the same desire. People, people, people. Relationship, relationship. Being in real relationship with those different from us, that is education made action. It's one thing I like about the Immigration Film Festival. Films are a way, really, of telling a story, a person's story. And the films that have been chosen for this particular festival have information in them, that's true, but they also tell the stories of people. It's a window into personal ethics. And then action itself can be an education. I didn't actually end up getting that policy discussion in jail. We were about 100 people away from each other in the line for processing. But I did get an education. I watched the young dreamers. Those are folks who came in um, to the States as children before they had an ability to make a choice, came in undocumented. I watched the young dreamers and their mothers I listened to the folks talking about why they were being arrested that day. That's the praxis model in action, the one my chaplaincy supervisors were trying to get me to embrace many years ago, that you learn in the doing and then learn more in the reflection and in the doing again. Not a straight line of education to action, but a spiral as we go deeper and deeper. Perhaps one of the ways we know we're getting to the right kind of education is if it not only spurs us to action, but to more questions. If the spiral has us hungering for more, more wonderings, more learning. Sister Simone, in that talk, warns against certitude, says that our doubt is key to walking towards trouble. And maybe that's some of my resistance to finding answers. My questions are what move me forward. And the answers I've found that are most deeply meaningful are the ones that raised still more questions about me, about the world, and how we fit together. Education that leaves me more disquieted. Now that is a lot to ask from those of us who tend to be perhaps left-brained, who grew up in traditional Western education environments. I had my little box of subdivided color-coded flashcards on American history, just like everyone else. Right? Did you have this? Little? No? Just me? (laughs) Education and action that asks for our trust our doubt, our questions, is a lot scarier than color-coded subdivided index cards. It also has the possibility of being world-changing, us-changing. And what's the worst that can happen, you know? I remember many, many years ago, I was in a, a march here against, uh, was the march against war and racism. It was a, had a big goal, <laughs> And um, actually, I think it was the march to end war and racism, which it didn't. But, uh, 
But I was in that march. Some of you might have been there, too, a number of years ago. And I was marching along with my contingent. I think I've told this story before. There I was marching with people whose signs I agreed with. It all looked great to me. And then something happened, you know, the way flow goes and marches. And I ended up with this other contingent who had signs I didn't agree with anymore, actually, on a particular sub-issue that was more complicated than signs could really get forth, at least in my opinion. There I was, not having perhaps educated myself as well as I could have been, just jumping into action in the wrong part of the march. But you know, I just stepped aside and let them go and waited until signs I could agree with came by again (laughs) and slid back in. Praxis, doing and reflecting and doing again. So I never did have that in-jail conversation about immigration policy, but I have read up on it since then so that I can answer questions. And I did talk there in the uh, arrest processing line. I can tell you that no one really thinks there won't be any more deportations. That's a cry from the heart, not a practical reality. I can tell you that some folks wish that all the countries would disappear as John Lennon imagined all those years ago, that country borders would be more like state lines, you know, jurisdictions and decision-making bodies that you could move freely among. But I don't think anyone thinks that's a likely political scenario anytime soon. And I can tell you that there are some actual policies out there on the table, like halting the deportation of the parents of DREAMers, Right now, what happens is dreamers are often able to stay and have a path towards citizenship, but their families can't. They're sent home. Or giving undocumented immigrants who have been working in our country, paying taxes. And you might have seen a poll recently about the amount that um, immigrants have given into the Social Security system compared to U.S.-born folks. I haven't done the research to know if that poll is accurate, but but it, it certainly tells a story about the support for the infrastructure of our country. So, so giving undocumented immigrants who have been working a path to citizenship. Or saying simply that we don't deport unaccompanied children here at any time. Right now, because of a policy that George W. Bush signed, we don't deport them immediately. That's why you see those pictures of the children detained at the border right now, because we can't deport them right away. And so certainly there are some, and I am one of them, that says when children who really are refugees from violence, not exactly immigrants, when those children arrive at our country's borders, we figure out a way to welcome them. At the heart of all of those different policy possibilities, though, is compassion, I think. And that is the kind of education that I want most to be able to speak at least somewhat intelligently about the policy option of the day, but most of all to be able to speak about the compassion underneath it, about the values that undergird it. Remember Ellen Post and her reluctant activism. Here's how she ended that blog post. For me, there's been a push-pull feeling about getting involved in causes I care about. Yes, I want to do this, but no, I'm not sure I can do this, but I want to do this, but I'm not sure I'm well-suited to doing this. And can other people just do this instead of me? But I'll feel better if I do this. And besides, I've noticed that just griping and doing nothing doesn't accomplish anything and doesn't make me feel better. 
So I'll do my best, short of a personality transplant, to get involved and to stay involved. I hope I'm still alive, Ellen writes, and the planet hasn't been destroyed by the time we see that shining light of success at the end of the long tunnel. It will have been a battle well worth fighting and winning. End quote. This is the work that the Washington Interfaith Network offers, I think, that our relationship with family and friends of incarcerated people offers. You'll see in your program that they have a cookout coming up on Saturday. A cookout where they'll be doing community education and handing out school supplies to kids as they get ready to go back to school. Now, I don't know everything about what they'll be doing there. I don't know the agenda of events. I can't give you the timeline. But I know that if you go, if you just jump into it, you'll be changed in some tiny way. So will someone else who's there for having met you. If you participate in a Washington Interfaith Network house meeting, if you get arrested, if you march, even if you end up surrounded by signs you have to step out of for just a few moments. If you watch and listen and learn, and especially if you do those things with an eye and an ear for the people, for the stories. If you engage with the world, you will be changed. And it just might be, too.